Well, I want to welcome you here today to Big Valley Grace, especially those of you that are visiting with us. Welcome uh, over there in the venue. Thank you, Jared, for leading worship over there. I know we have lots of people that um, watch uh, online, and I welcome you if you're listening on the radio. We're, we're glad you're, you're with us. If you have a Bible, you can turn to the first chapter of Nehemiah. And if you're here with us, uh, if you don't have a Bible, all of the verses, or at least most of them will be in your, in your notes, or they'll be on the, the, the jumbotrons. Um, we started um, a series here last weekend on leadership, godly leadership, and we're using the life of Nehemiah uh, as our example. I told you last week that uh, leadership is, is all about character. It's all about character. It's not about having charisma. It's not about having the right temperament or the right personality. It's not about wealth. It's not about having a college degree or a high school degree. It's, it's not even about age. There was a young pastor by the name of Timothy, and Paul wrote to him and said this in 1 Timothy chapter 4, he said, Timothy, don't let anyone treat you as if you're unimportant because you're young. Instead, be an example to the believers in your words, be an example to the believers in your actions, your love, your faith, and in your pure life. Beloved, Paul's telling this young pastor that age isn't the key to good leadership. It's character. Leadership is all about character. Now, I'm going to make a statement that's going to scare some of you. And uh, I got a number of emails last week concerning this, and so I want to deal with it. Everybody in this room, whether you like it or not, is a leader. Everybody in this room. And if you want to write something down in your note sheet, you can write this down. Uh, leadership is also about influencing Leadership is all about character, but it's also about influence. Some of you are leaders or influencers in your home, right? You're a parent. You're a mom or a dad. Some of you are a leader or an influencer in your home because you're, you're, a, you're a child in the home. Maybe you're the oldest sibling in the home. And you're a leader in that home. You're an influencer in that home. Some of you are leaders or influencers in, in your class, in your classroom. You're, you're a teacher in a classroom. You're an influencer. Maybe you're a student in that classroom. You're a leader. You're, you're, you're an influencer. Some of you are leaders or influencers in your neighborhood. Some of you are leaders or influencers at the business that you own. You may not have thought of yourself as a leader, but if you own that business, when you drive onto the parking lot, walk inside that building, and there's a number of employees, guess what? You're a leader. You're an influencer of people. Some of you are, are, are leaders or, or, or influencers at the place that you work. Yes, you may have a boss. There may be an owner of the company, but... Every good leader knows that there are employees who are leaders. They're influencers. Some of you are leaders or, or influencers on the team that you play on. Maybe it's a baseball team. It's a football team. It might be a, a golf team that you play on, a tennis team that you play on. You're a leader, and it doesn't matter whether they put a big C on your uniform and says that you're a captain. I've played a lot of sports. And I played with a lot of guys that were captains, but wow, there were other players on the team that were leaders. In fact, they were much more influential than even the captains might, might, have, might have been. Beloved, every one of us is a leader. We're all influencers. So the issue isn't, are you a leader? Because you are a leader. The issue is whether you're a good leader. That's the issue we all have to wrestle around with. Are, are you a leader? Yes. Are you an influencer? Yes. We all are. 
The only thing you got to wrestle around with is whether you're a good leader or you're a crummy leader. You see, there are crummy leaders. And let me just throw the pendulum way over here. You got guys like, like Hitler. That was a crummy leader. Did he have influence? Absolutely. Uh, Charlie Manson. Did he have uh, influence? Yeah. He may not have as much as Hitler had, but he had influence over a, a, a small group of, of, of people, you see. Some have much more influence than others in this room. Just by virtue of maybe where you work or whatever all, all, all that might be. But make no mistake about it, we're all leaders. We're all influencers. And when you look at the life of Nehemiah, when you look at the, the book we call it of Nehemiah, which is really his personal journal, you, you, you see a, a man who was a good leader. He was a godly leader. He, was a, he influenced for the good. And so we're, we're allowing him to, to kind of lead us, if you will. We're, we're examining his life, how we lived it, some of the things he did, so that we all might become better leaders in whatever the context is that God has us. Now, I want to give you a little back drop to the story. I did this last week, um, but I need to do it again this week also because I know we have some new folks here. Um, God had told the, the Jewish people, look, here's how I want you to live your life. Here are my commands. Here are my decrees. And uh, if, you, if you'll obey me, if you'll just follow what I say, God said, I'll keep my hand of blessing on you, you your life, and all, all that kind of stuff, the nation. And the people of God said, well, thank you very much, God. Thanks for the commands and the decrees and all that. But we don't want to live by your commands. We, we don't want to do what you say. And that came with a consequence. And by the way, um, here, here it is thousands of years later. And if you choose to blow God off in your life, your family, your business, it, it still comes with a consequence. But back when, you know, Nehemiah lived, God had told the people, here's how I want you to live, and the people blew God off. And so the Lord, you know, took his hand of blessing off of the people, and he allowed a conquering army, if you will, to come into Jerusalem, and uh, they bust through the walls that protected the city, and they decimated the, 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 the city. They tore down the temple in the city. And they took all the Jews that lived there and they deported them to um, Babylon. And Babylon is where Iraq is today. So disobeying God came with a, a high price. So the people have... You know, their cities and their ruins, their, their temple has been, you know, tore down, and the people have been deported to, to Babylon. Well, there came a moment when God began to allow the people back into Jerusalem. And so a first wave of people came into Jerusalem. Then there came a, a moment where, where a second group came back into Jerusalem, and that second group, they, they rebuilt the temple. Now, the city was a mess. The walls had been torn down, and the, you know, the, 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 the town was a, a mess. Uh, maybe, maybe you've seen the pictures of like Hurricane Sandy, and you see a town that's just been decimated. That, that, that's kind of what Jerusalem looked like. It was bad. It was, it was really bad. But the second group came back in. There was a guy by the name of Zerubbabel, and he rebuilt the temple. And then a, another group got to come back. And, and finally, in about 445 B.C., Nehemiah asked the king for permission to return to Jerusalem with a third group of Jews that he could rebuild the city, and especially the walls of the city. Now, Nehemiah wasn't born uh, in, in Jerusalem. He wasn't there when all of, you know, his dad and mom and grandma and grandpa and all those folks would have, you know, disobeyed God. He was, he was probably born in captivity. He, he was born in Babylon, probably. And so there comes a moment when he says, you know, hey, king, I'd like to go back and, you know, kind of fix up the town, if you will, and re re rebuild the walls. And the reason these walls needed to be rebuilt was because in that, you know, 
era, the walls are what protected a city. We don't have a big wall going around Modesto. We protect our cities differently today than they did in biblical days. See, in biblical days, they would put a big wall up around the city, and that's what protected you from invading armies, bad guys, and, and it may not have kept them out, but at least when they got to the wall, it may have taken a week or a month or a couple of months to finally break through the walls and, and, and get to you, so you had time to you know, plan or run or whatever it is you, you wanted to do. So the walls needed to be rebuilt just for protection purposes. But the other reason why those walls needed to be re repaired was because they were down, because the city was in ruins, all the people that were making their way back into Jerusalem, they are bummed out. Imagine living in, you know, New Jersey or New York uh, and, and your town was decimated. And all around you are houses that are all broke down and, you know, trees that are all knocked over and you got no power, you got no electricity. It's discouraging. And the people were super discouraged because their town was in ruins. There was no walls and they'd go to bed at night and you never knew if a bad guy, you know, bad army was going to show up and come in and kill you or your wife or worse, you know. And so the morale was way, way down. So these walls needed to be rebuilt because they just needed protection and, and, and they were just discouraged. And so God is going to allow Nehemiah to be the, that guy who does it. He, Nehemiah is the leader that God chooses to go and rebuild the walls, rebuild the city, you know, bring hope you know, back, back to the people kind of a thing. Now, now, why did he pick Nehemiah? And this is where I was at last week. Uh, well, let me give you three reasons. And last week I gave you the first one. And then we're going to move on to the prayer of Nehemiah. Number one, God chose Nehemiah because he was sensitive to the needs of the people. In verse 4, it says, when I heard this, when his brother had gone to Jerusalem, Nehemiah's brother had gone to Jerusalem, his brother comes back, and I don't know, they're having coffee or sitting around having breakfast. And Nehemiah says, so what's it like there? And Nehemiah's brother said, oh, man, it's horrible, man. The walls are all down. The city's in the ruins. And the people are all depressed and bummed out. It, it, it's really crummy. And so it says here, when I heard this, I sat down and I wept. In fact, for days. And in the Hebrew, it, it has the idea that maybe this went on for months. For, for, for days, months, I mourned over the plight of the people there in Jerusalem, the conditions. For days, for months, I fasted and, and, and prayed to the God of heaven. And one of the things you see right out of the gate when you look at the life of Nehemiah is how sensitive he was to what was happening around him. Remember, he had never been to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was 800 to 1,000 miles away. And yet here he is, he, he, he hears about what's happening and and it just impacted his life. And, and let me just tell you something. You want to be a good leader? You want to be a godly leader? And I talked a lot about this last week. you got to be sensitive to what's happening around you. you got to be sensitive to what's happening in your spouse's life, your children's life. You need to be sensitive about what's happening in the life of maybe your employees. You need to be insensitive about, about the, the students that might be in your classroom. You need to be sensitive about, you know, those kinds of things. Good leaders don't just, you know, run in and, you know, make decisions and, you know, my gosh, I'm the boss. It's my business. Just get to work. You get a paycheck, you know. You're a leader, but you're not necessarily a good one. You're not really a leader that God's going to use in some incredible ways. But you notice that in the life of Nehemiah, he was very sensitive to the needs around him. Number two, and this is where I left off last week, God chose Nehemiah because he was trustworthy. Verse 11 says, in those days, I was the king's cupbearer. This tells us what Nehemiah did for a living. He was a cupbearer to the, to the king. Now, what exactly is a cupbearer? Well, a cupbearer was probably the second most important position in the kingdom, he was kind of a combination uh, prime minister, bodyguard, personal assistant to the king. 
which means that Nehemiah was well trusted. Our president, President Obama, has the secret service that protects him. Our president trusts his life to the secret service. The king, in this time, trusted his life to Nehemiah. Nehemiah was kind of like the uh, secret service, if you will, of the day. Now, um, the reason he was called the cupbearer is because part of his job was to taste the wine before the, the king drank it to make sure there wasn't any poison in it. And so, you know, they'd bring out the bottle of wine, whatever it was, and they'd pour it into the glass. And, you know, before the king drank it, you know, Nehemiah had a team together, Secret Service. Hold on there. Let me taste it because people didn't like the king. He wasn't a real popular king, Artaxerxes. And so there were all kinds of assassination attempts and plots. And so what would happen is the cupbearer made sure that, hey, listen, let me, let me taste this for you. And he'd taste it. And he'd wait a few minutes, and then, you know, if the guy died, then he went, you know, that's a bad year. <laughs> you know, don't, don't touch that one. You know, let, let, let's uncork another bottle, maybe, and we'll, we'll drink that. Um, now, now, on a side note, I think it's really cool how God has a way of getting his followers into the right places. Here, here's this man, Nehemiah, um, who God, because of how he lived his life, has raised him up to this very prominent position within the Persian government. And as I thought about that, I, I thought, you know, that's our God. He has a way of making sure he gets his people in places where they can make a, a difference, where they can have influence. God cares about kings, and he cares about those that may have nothing. He cares deeply uh, about people. Now, most of you probably will never influence a king or influence you know, the president or whatever. But God, Christian, listen to me, has strategically placed you in places some of you are, are teachers in schools that want nothing to do with Jesus, right? And yet, God has you five days a week, you know, nine months out of the year, walking into a place that really wants nothing to do with God or Jesus. And there you are. Interesting, isn't it? That God has put you in a position of leadership, a, a position of influence. Some of you are, are, are administrators, um, at schools that don't want anything to do with Jesus. Isn't that interesting? God has strategically placed you in a place where you could have leadership, where you could have influence. Some of you are, are lawyers in places that want nothing to do with Jesus. Some of you are, are, are doctors and nurses and PAs in and, and places that really don't want a whole lot to do with Jesus. They're not hostile to the things of, of God. But God put, put, put you there to be an influence. Some of you are, are owners of businesses and you have employees that want nothing to do with Jesus. And yet God blessed you with a business and you've been able to hire people. You don't even have to go out and knock on a door. Every day they show up and they punch in at your business and there they are. Unbelievable. And God has put you in a place of leadership, a place of influence. So some of you are employees at places that want nothing to do with Jesus, right? Your boss or the owner of the company is much like Artaxerxes. He, he doesn't want anything to do with Jesus. And yet there God has you. And God wants to use you there. Some of you live next door to people that want nothing to do with Jesus, right? And yet there you are. Beloved, I don't know, you know what exactly all of you do, but I do know this. God wants to use you there. 
He wants to use you just like he used Nehemiah, but it'll never happen if you aren't sensitive to the, you know, to the needs of the people around you. Your boss isn't going to care if you're a believer, if you're just a jerk, and you don't care. The kids in your classroom aren't going to care that you're a follower of Jesus if, if, if you really don't care all that much about them. Your, your neighbors aren't really going to care that you go to Big Valley Grace and that you're a follower of Jesus if you aren't sensitive to what's happening you know, in their lives. One of the great things we see when you look at the life of Nehemiah, what made him a great leader is he cared deeply about people and he was trustworthy. Now the third reason God chose Nehemiah was this, is he chose him because he was available. He was available. Beloved, the, the situation needed a leader and Nehemiah said, I volunteer, I'll do it. Count me in, I'll go. And this is really important, especially today, because I find that too many Christians are, are too busy. They're too busy. There, there, there's something that's happening, and God wants to use you to make a difference somewhere, and you're just too busy, and I agree with you, you're, you're too busy. And one of the things that you, you, you may have to look at, believer, is, you know, has my life just gotten so crammed full of, you know, stuff, things, that I'm not even available for, for God to use? And it's important to get your life in a place where if God calls you to do something, man, you, you're, you're ready to go. I'll, I'll tell you another reason, why, uh, another reason why some people just don't make themselves available is they think that they don't have the ability to, to pull off the job. Look, Nehemiah is going to go back to a city where the walls are tore down, the town's a mess. He's not a contractor. He's a cupbearer. He said, I'll go, I'll make myself available. I don't know anything about building a wall. I don't know anything about, you know, how to build a house, but I'm available, God, you know, count me in. L listen, Christian, God cares a whole lot more about your availability than he does your ability. God can do anything he wants with anybody he wants. And quit worrying about whether you have the ability to pull something off and instead just say, I'm available. If you need me, God, I'm available. When you look around and you see the needs around the church, make yourself available. If you see needs someplace, maybe some organization, just, man, I don't know anything about that, but I'll make myself available, God. Count me in, you know. Here am I, send me, uh, uh, Isaiah said. Now, here's the deal. I, I want to just kind of transition into, into looking at Nehemiah's prayer in verses 5 through 10. Because it's, it's here that we see the prayer life of a leader. Yeah, he was sensitive to the needs of the people around him. Yes, he was a trustworthy man. He had lived his life with great integrity. You don't get to be the cupbearer if you're a loser. And he was available. But now we move into this incredible prayer. He prays at least nine times in the book of Nehemiah. This is his first prayer, and we learn a lot about the prayer life of a, of a leader when, when you, you see this. And there are three questions that I want to deal with. Number one, I want to deal with when should a leader pray. Number two, I want to deal with, you know, why should a leader pray. And then number three, where we actually look at the prayer, I want to look at how should a leader pray. So let's look at the first question, okay? When should a leader pray? Well, the answer is this. The answer is a leader always prays before they do anything else. A leader, a good leader, a godly leader always prays before they do anything else. Now listen, leaders do more than pray. Nehemiah, next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at what, what happens after he gets up off his knees. But but before a leader does anything, they pray. Now, they're going to do more than pray. 
But that's always where they begin. Once again, verse four says, when I heard this, when I heard about how crummy things were, I formed a committee. No, it doesn't, doesn't say that. When I heard about all the stuff that was going on, man, I got out my yellow pad and started making a list of all the things I need to do to get the job done. He didn't do that, did he? Man, when I, when, I, when I heard about all the crud, the first thing I did was go to the yellow pages and find out who are all the good construction crew guys out there because I'm going to need, you know, good. Uh-uh. When I heard this, when I heard about what was happening, I wept, I fasted, and prayed. I went to the Lord. The, the, maybe, guys, um, I don't want to sound stereotypical here, but I think it's how our brains are wired. And most guys, most, um, boys, something goes down. Boom! We just want to fix it. Oh man, let me get on. I got this. We'll do this. I get this. Hey, get it. Well, let me look at my website. I got six guys. We'll get a team together. And, we'll f- and we just immediately go into, you know, fix it mode. And there's a time to do that. But a good leader always begins by praying, always checking in with the, the, the Lord. There's no doubt that. Nehemiah was a, a man of action. He was a great organizer. He was a, a great motivator. He was a great manager. He rebuilt the walls around the city in about 52 days. Yet instead of immediately going out and doing something, when he heard you know, all the crumminess that was going on, the first thing he did was get alone with God. There's a, there's a story in Joshua chapter 9. It's a fantastic story. Joshua has wiped out the, the, the city of, of Jericho. And he's had a battle at a town called Ai. Ai didn't go so well, but there was still a battle that, that went on. And um, all of these enemy nations of Israel in the region um, were scared. And they, they saw that the, the Jewish people were going out and wiping everybody out. And so all of these nations come together and they said, hey, let's, let's put together one big army. Let's have all of our nations, all of our armies come together and, and together we'll go wipe out the Jews. And uh, you can imagine this meeting of all these generals together and hey, why don't we all come together? And they all left the meeting. But there was one group, the Gibeonites, who went, man, no way. I'm telling you, man, the, 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 the Israelites will wipe us out. They'll, they'll kill us. So I don't want to form up an army and, and go to war. We're, we, we die. And so they got together, and they went, okay, here's the deal. We got to fake the Jewish people out. We got to somehow... Um, Make them think that we're from a far off land, that we're not a part of these, the, 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 this group. And so what they did was they, they put a group together and they got all these old clothes and, and ripped them all up and put dirt all over themselves and, and uh, got old wineskins and, and, and you know, put wine in them and, and, and got old bread that had holes in it and was all moldy and... and you know, packed up all these people and they said, okay, now listen, you go, to the, you go to the Jews' camp and you tell them that you came from a long, long way away and let's see if they'll sign a peace treaty with you. And so these guys, can imagine, they're all dusty. They're only coming about 25 miles. I mean, they, they lived real close by. So they show up into the camp of the Jews, all dusty, and, and they said, hey, look at this, we're dusty. We've been traveling for months and months and months, you know. Look at our clothes. They're all dirty and holes because we've come such a long way. These wine uh, 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 holders, wineskins were brand new when we left. Look at them now. They're all old and, you know, cracked up. And this bread, when we left, we took this bread right out of the ovens. It was warm and hot. Look at it now. It's all old and crusty and moldy. We've come from a long way away. Could we have peace with you? The Bible says that Joshua looked at their clothes, 
looked at their bread, looked at their wineskins. And it says this in verse 14. So the Israelites examined their food, but they did not consult the Lord. That's a mistake. That's always a mistake. They didn't pray. They didn't sit down with the Lord and say, hey, Lord, uh, we got this group of people here. They say they came from a long way away. It sure looks like they've come from a long way away. I mean, their clothes are all dusty. Their food's all gross and moldy. And man, their wineskins are all old. But God, what do you think? And so you know what they did? The Israelites got duped. They got tricked. And they signed the peace treaty with the Gibeonites. And they find out that they got duped. They find out they got tricked. But I read that story and I thought to myself, you know, look, <laughs> I think human beings are probably the only thing that God ever created that has the ability to deceive itself. And we are in desperate need of God. And the first thing that a good leader does before they start examining the clothes and the wineskins and all the food and start looking at all the stuff that's going on, they get there. But the first thing you do is you pray. The first thing you do is get on your knees and say, God, you know, here, here, here's what's going on. And I'm, 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 coming, I'm coming to you. Question number two. Why should a leader pray? Well, the answer is a leader prays because they know that God's the key to everything. If Joshua would have prayed, he would have known he's being duped, he's being tricked. In John 15, Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. And we as human beings like to mix those two things up. Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he will bear much Fruit, man, amazing things happen when you stay connected to me, Jesus said. And then he said, for apart from me, you can do nothing. And here's the thing that we get deceived into thinking, Christian, is when we're not connected to the Lord, it looks like we're doing something. It, it looks like we're accomplishing something. But God says, no, no, no. It may look like it to you, it may look like it to others. But you're not accomplishing anything when you're apart from me. Nothing. It's when you're connected to me. That's when action happens. Praying is, is the key to everything. Now, let me, let, me, let me cut to the chase here and tell you why people don't pray as much as they should. Why they don't talk with the Lord as much as they, they should. The reason why people don't do that is because we think we can handle things on our own. We don't need anybody's help, right guys? We don't need help. It's human nature for us when something goes down to think, I can handle that. I don't need anybody's help. I don't need God's help. God, you got bigger things to worry about than what this, you know, my business or this thing that's going on or my family or my children or my grandpa or whatever it is. God, God, you're, you're busy. You got that whole Iran thing going on. And man, you, you, you got that crisis, you know, going on in North Korea. You got all these big, heavy things going on. God, I don't want to bother you with my stuff because I can handle it. I got a great education, God. I've walked with you for, for, for decades, God. I know everything there is to know. I've read through my Bible, you know, 10, 20, 30 times. I don't need to go to you, God. I got all the answers. That's human nature. And that's why it's important at a moment like this, you know, we encourage one another. I'm encouraging you to make sure that, that you, you know, you pray because God's the key to it all. He's the one. He's the one that could, could have let Joshua in on what was happening, you see. I, 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 I don't know if I've ever told this story before, but um, when I was a youth pastor here, I, every year we took kids to, to Hume Lake, and there was a time, especially early on, we were small, and we would take a small group there, of, of kids, but it was always like a, a big deal for the students to, to get me. 
uh, especially the, the, the seniors. The seniors always plan, you know, okay, we're going to, you know, throw Rick in the lake or, you know, we're going to bombard him with, you know, mud balls out in the thing. And, and they'd always plan, you know, some big, big deal. And um, what they didn't know was I, the freshmen were always my, my informants, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> I get together with the freshmen and, okay, hey, they're going to try to throw you into the lake today. Ah, and so, I, you know, I whip off a, a $5 bill and hand it to him. <laughs> it was like a CIA covert operation here. And so I, I made sure I wasn't around the lake or whatever it is that they were going to do, you know. Well, I remember one time uh, these, you know, student came up and said, hey, 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 hey. They put a snake in your, in your uh, sleeping bag. Snake, dude. I just, you know, the whole wad. You know, <laughs> thank you. I hate snakes. I'm just freaked out about snakes. So I go up to my cabin, and I had a room, you know, with, you know, whatever it was, eight or nine seniors. And sure enough, I don't think I would have noticed it if it had been night. You know, my sleeping bag was all zipped up. And I was going, oh, man. And, and sure enough, there was a lump that moved, okay? And it's like, oh, yeah. So what I did was I got my sleeping bag and unzipped it. I went to another guy's sleeping bag, you know, unzipped his, and boom, and it sounded like it weighed like 100 pounds. Boom! You know, the snake lands in his bag, and I zipped his bag up. Then I zipped my bag up, and so now I got this thing set up. So now it's night, and I would have caught on right here because all of the guys in my cabin, instead of wanting to hang out by the fireplace and look at girls, they, hey, Rick, I think we need to go up and, you know, have a devotional. That, that would have been a dead giveaway. Something was going on. Oh, yeah. Yeah, let's go up to our cabin and have a devotional. So we kind of go up to the cabin, you know, and we're in our room, and everybody's brushing their teeth, you know, putting their J's on and all that kind of stuff. And I have to wait. I have to time it out so that they get into the, into the, into, into the sleeping bag first, you know. And so I'm stalling, you know, combing my hair, whatever. I'm, and finally, guy opens up a sleeping bag, and I'm thinking, he, he slides in. And all of a sudden, ah, 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 and he jumps out, man, and this, you know, three-headed viper comes out. See? <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> Here's my point. If, uh, <laughs> and I have one. If, think about this. If I don't listen to my guy, I get the snake. But I listen. The reason Joshua got the snake, he didn't listen. The reason sometimes we, we get the snakes, you know, and our lives kind of go sideways, or our families go sideways, or our businesses go sideways, or whatever, is because we haven't spent time listening to God. And God would tell us, hey, hey, whoa, 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 don't do that. There's a snake in the bag, you see. And so oftentimes, we as believers, the reason why we find our lives in a mess is because we just haven't spent time praying. It's the key to everything. In, in, um, in the greatest sermon that was ever, ever preached, um, Jesus said this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Now, what does it mean, poor in spirit? Well, I, I read this from Dr. MacArthur. He said this, quote, To be poor in spirit is to recognize one's spiritual poverty apart from God. It is to see oneself as one really is, lost, hopeless, helpless. Apart from Jesus Christ, every person is spiritually destitute, no matter what his education, no matter his wealth, no matter his social status, no matter his accomplishments or religious knowledge. That is the point of the first beatitude. The poor in spirit are those who recognize their total spiritual destitute and their complete dependence on God. And I think one of the things that can happen is that in our humanity, the old man, the Adamic nature, whatever name you want to put on it, we forget that. 
And we start thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. And we no longer see ourselves as poor in spirit. We no longer see ourselves in, in total need of God. And so instead of praying and understanding that, that, that God's the key to it all, we just rush out and we just kind of do our own thing because we don't really think we're that destitute any, any, anymore, you see? Look, your usefulness as a leader in your home or your neighborhood or the place that you work or the business you own or the classroom you teach in or whatever begins when you recognize just how goofed up you are, just how poor in spirit you are. Because that then leads you to one place on your knees, right? You, 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 you pray. Um, let, let me get to question number three, okay? How should a leader pray? Okay, this is the biggie. This is the biggie, okay? Now we're going to actually look at, at, at Nehemiah's prayer, okay? Verses 5 through 10 give us, a, a, I think, a really good pattern for prayer. I think there's a lot we can learn here. You want to be a good, godly leader, look at this prayer, look at the pattern of it, and then apply it to your life. And, and I guarantee you, wow, buckle your seatbelt, because God will begin to maybe do some incredible things in your life, things you never dreamed of. So step number one, a leader begins their time of prayer remembering who God is which is exactly what Nehemiah does. In verse five, he says, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love to those who love him and obey his, his commands. Look, before Nehemiah does anything, before he asks God for anything, he just spends some time remembering who God is. God, you're great. God, you're awesome. God, you keep your promises. This is where you begin. I wish I could tell you as your pastor, that's where I always begin. But let me tell you where I tend to always begin. Here's my list of things I need you to do, God. I need you to do this, I got this going on, I got bada boom and a bing and a bang and a hey, what about this? And don't forget about my kids and I got that and my church and here's all the, and I give him the list of stuff. Oh, and by the way, wow, you're great. Okay, bye. And, and, and I, I can spend a whole lot of time with my list of things. Nehemiah's got a list of things, and they're weighty. He's been fasting and mourning and crying for days. He's got some stuff. But that's not where he begins. He begins on simply looking and remembering all the great things that there is to know about God. And let me tell you what happens when you do that. It tends to put things in perspective. You know, the more you walk around a mountain, the bigger that mountain can look, right? So don't get into your prayer talking about the mountain. <laughs> Start your prayer by looking at the God who's way bigger than that mountain is. You see, Nehemiah knew that the problems in Jerusalem were great, but God was greater. God knew that, man, there were big, big things that need to happen in Jerusalem, but he knew that God was bigger. And that's where he wanted to focus his, his time. Because look, when, when you're in leadership positions in your home and your business, it's stressful, isn't it? You're dealing with lots of stuff, especially when you're sensitive to the, to the needs of those around you. Every week, every single week, I get this sheet of paper. It comes electronically, and I'm handed one. And this is going to come uh, as, as some of you don't know this. This sheet of paper, there's one name right here. And let's just say it's my name. I don't want to tell you who this person is, okay? But imagine my name, and then it's got my phone number. And then it, here's why I'm in the hospital, and here's the surgery I'm having done. And, and, and then there's a name of a person who's being a blessing to them, Okay? So every line is just one name, okay? These are all the people at Big Valley Grace, basically, who are struggling with some health thing, in the hospital, whatever. 
Now, every week, some people go home from the hospital and they're healthy on the road to recovery, and new people are added. The sheet also has all the people that have passed away in our church this past week. And when this thing comes, and I get it electronically on my computer, bing, and it says care and visitation, I want you to know what happens. Immediately, I, I just, I go into depression. Every week. You can't see a list like this and not be impacted. Because for every name, there's, there's 10 other people that are impacted, a spouse and children, grandchildren, um, uh, siblings, friends. This is a sheet of paper with a lot of pain and sorrow attached to it. And I get this every week, and I look at these names, and I see the cancer and the pelvic surgery and the soldier surgery and the stroke and the cancer and the kidney transplants and the lung and the hernia surgery and the hip replacement and the thyroid surgery and the, and the tumors. You know what this causes me to do? I gotta get on my knees in a hurry and go, oh God, you are great! You are awesome! You're unbelievable! You're the, you're the one who has the power to meet all of their needs, you see? I immediately have to go there because one of the things that happens when you pray is that it lightens your load. And as a leader, you bear lots of things. You bear the load of your employees and making sure that they're paid and all of the stuff. And you're the one that's worried about making the next deal so that you got enough to make the payroll, right? If you're a teacher, you're the one that bears the burden of all these young lives that are in there and they're trying to learn and, and, and you find out that one of them is sick or their mommy died or whatever. Or you're the mom in a home and you see your husband going sideways and your teenagers are following their husband and doing dumb things. Boy, leadership can suck the life out of you. And one of the things that happens when you pray is, wow, it just lightens the, 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 load, the load. So before Nehemiah does anything, the first thing he does is he just remembers how great and awesome God is. He spends some time just remembering the great attributes of God. Now, now the second step is this. And this is, once again, he, he's not getting to this, the list yet. He starts with remembering how great God is, who God is, and now he's going to remember who he is. He's going to spend some time remembering or, or confessing to God the sin in his life. Verse 6 says, look down and see me praying night and day before your people Israel. I confess that we have sinned against you. He's confessing national sin. He's confessing sin that he wasn't even involved in. And that's something we don't know anything about here in America. We're very individualistic people here. You don't see that in the Old Testament. He's confessing the sins of his grandpa and grandma and his parents. Remember, he wasn't even in Jerusalem. He wasn't a part of the sin that brought the nation of Israel to, to, you know, into captivity. And then he says, yes, even my own family and I have sinned. We have sinned terribly. How? By not obeying the commands and the decrees and the regulations that you gave us through your servant Moses. And for us today, it would be the scriptures. God has said, hey, here's how I want you to live your life. Here are the things I want you to do with your life. Here are the things I want you to get involved in in your life. Here are the things I want you to stay away from. Here's how I want you as a follower of mine to conduct your life. And just like Nehemiah and his family, you know what? They got away from the Lord. And part of the prayer of a leader is you got to spend some time just dealing with your own life. The sin in your own life. Before you start, oh God, bless my business. God, do this. God, my family. Boy, you know, my kids are gone sideways. You know, one of the things we're really good at is we can see the sin 
of our spouse at a hundred paces. We can see the sin of our children a mile away. We can see everybody else's sin so clearly, but our own. We can see the speck in somebody else's eye, but the log in our own, whatever. And one of the things you see here in, in Nehemiah's life, what made him a great leader was, man, he loved to praise the Lord and remember who God was and all that, but he also was very cognitive of his own life, the sin in his own life, and he, he's asking God for forgiveness. And one of the great things is, one of God's great promises is, if we confess our sins, right, God is faithful, he's righteous to forgive us of all of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Bible says in Isaiah 59, it's your sins that have cut you off from God. It's your sin. Because of your sin, he has turned away and he's not going to listen anymore. And though Isaiah wrote that thousands of years ago, it's still true today. It's our sin that goofs everything up. And so make sure that you spend some time worshiping the Lord, praising the Lord through, you know, remembering his great attributes, and then spend some time Confessing sin, the sin in your life, whatever that, that might be. Step three, a leader believes that God will do what he promises to do. In verse eight, please remember what you told your servant Moses. You gotta love Nehemiah. He's telling God to remember something. And God doesn't shoot him with a lightning bolt. Hey, you loser, how dare you tell me to remember? If you, he, and, and here was the promise. If you are unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. And he did that. But if you return to me and you obey my commands and live by them, then even if you are in exile to the ends of the earth, I will bring you back to the place I have chosen for my name to be honored. He wants God to remember the promise that he told Moses. God, I know that you warned us that if we sinned, you'd take away our, our land, but you also promised that if we were faithful, we'd get it back. And the reason Nehemiah is telling God this is because he's going to step out in faith and believe that God's going to do it. In fact, all through the Bible, you find God's people reminding God about what he promised to do. David did it, and Abraham did it, and Moses did it. All the prophets did it. They all said, God, I want you to, you know, I want to remind you of your promise. Because I'm going to step out in faith and believe you're going to do it. And good leaders, they worship the Lord and remember him. They confess their sin, and then they really believe the promises of God. Now let me tell you what the problem is for some of you. You can't step out and believe the promises because you don't know them. You don't know them. And for some of you, I think you got a pretty good excuse. You got a valid excuse. You just haven't walked with God long enough. You're on the front end of your journey of faith. For, for some of you, you've walked with God a long time and you just don't know what the great promises of God are. So it's hard for you to claim them and say, God, I believe what your word says here and I'm going to step out in faith and believe it. Somebody had calculated that there's like over 7,000 promises in God's word. And God made those promises for us. To, to, to believe them, to trust him for them, to live by faith in those promises. The writer of Hebrews says, without faith, nobody can please God. And so a good leader believes that God will do what he promises to, to do. In fact, what Nehemiah is doing here, those, that promise in verse 8 and 9, you find in Leviticus chapter 26 and Deuteronomy chapter 30. He knew the promise. And so he's just saying, ah, God, remember that, because I'm stepping out in faith. I believe you're going you're gonna to do this. Now, now, step four. A leader is very specific about what he asks God for. 
Here's, here's what we all like getting to. Nehemiah doesn't do it till the end. He starts with praises to God. Then he moves into a time of confession of his life. Then he moves into a time of saying, God, I am going to follow you. I'm going to believe in your promises. And now in verse 10, he says, the people you rescued by your great power and strong hand are your servants. Oh Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success. That's a great prayer. When was the last time you asked God to give you success? Give me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put into his heart to be kind to me. Now, now, now look, just, just follow me here, okay? Nehemiah cares deeply about what's happening in the people's lives in Jerusalem, right? He's sensitive to their needs. He's trustworthy. He's the cupbearer. And he's willing to go make a difference. He, he's available, the problem was, was that he needed permission from the king to go. He couldn't just take off. And the king was not a believer. In fact, the king had already said, nobody's rebuilding those walls. So Nehemiah's got a problem. Yeah, he's sensitive, and yeah, he's trustworthy, and you know, yeah, he's available. But there's a problem. My boss... I got to go to my boss and ask for a three-year leave of absence. And I'm his trusted advisor. And so what does he do? He gets very specific with God. Hey, God, here's the gig. You got to give me favor in his eyes. You got to work in his life. You, you got to move in his heart that not only would he allow me to go, but he allowed me to fix the walls up. He's getting specific just like we always do with the things in our lives, our families, our spouses, our grandkids, whatever it might be. He's getting very specific now. Now let me tell you what I, what I like about this prayer. I love the fact that he's super bold. He asked the Lord, Lord, make me successful. Have you ever done that? Now, don't, don't raise your hand. Have you ever done that? Have you ever said, God, make me successful? And if you haven't done that, why not? What's the alternative? You're a failure? Look, there's nothing wrong with praying for success if what you're doing is ultimately for God's glory. Beloved, I, I wanna challenge you to, to pray boldly. Pray that God will make you successful in your life for God's glory. Pray that God will make you successful in your business for God's glory. Pray that God will make you successful in your classroom, whether you're a teacher or you're a student, for God's glory. Pray that God will make you successful in your relationships for God's glory. Pray that God will make you successful in your marriage for God's glory. Pray that God would make you successful in your parenting for God's glory. That's what ne Nehemiah did. I think it's a valid prayer. Give me success. Here, here's the point. If you can't ask God to bless what you're doing, then you're probably not doing what God wants you to do. The reason some of you could never pray, give me success with because you know it doesn't honor God. It's not what God wants you to do. But when you are in the middle of God's will and, and he's given you a business or he's given you a, a family, a wife, a, 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 a whatever it is, let me tell you something, there is nothing wrong with going before God and saying, God, would you give me success in this marriage? God, would you give me success in being a good parent? God, would you give me success in being a good grandpa or a good grandma? God, would you give me success in being a good student in that classroom? God, would you give me a success to be a good you know, a, a teammate on the team that that I'm on for your glory. There's nothing wrong with that. That's what Nehemiah is doing. He knows what he's gonna have to do, and we're gonna look at this next week, Lord willing. He's gonna have to go and ask the king. Can I get some time off? To go do something you've already said you didn't want to happen. 
And he's simply saying, God, would you give me success in this? Would you do it? For your glory, God. And I want to challenge you. We all ought to be, 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 be that kind of person. Look, as I shared with you in the beginning, all of us are leaders. We're all influencers. The issue is whether we're a good one or not. And most of you, you know, 95.8% of you are, are good leaders. You're good influencers. I know that. But we can all be better at it, can't we? And for that 4.2% of you that, you know, aren't, aren't real good at, you know, leading, influencing people, you look at this prayer of Nehemiah. Prayer that happened thousands of years ago. And you apply that. You let that be the pattern of your prayer life. Buckle your seatbelt. And you watch how God begins to use you in some, in, in some incredible ways, okay? Why don't you all stand, all right? Just close your eyes for, for, for just a second. Over in the venue, why don't you stand? And I'm going to have Pastor... Scott, just close our, our time in, in prayer. So close your eyes, and Scott, you, you pray, okay?